Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much, Dale and Wayne, for leading us so powerfully today. It's great to see all of you here this morning. And I want to add my word of welcome to that which already stated. Somebody probably stated it, but I'm saying it. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. And if you're a visitor today, we want you to give us a record of your visit by filling out the card that's in front of you. And please do that. Put it in the offering plate. Give it to me. Give it to somebody uh, after the service. But we would appreciate that because I want to be able to call you. I want to contact you. If you'll e let me email you, call you, whatever you would allow, I would appreciate it. So do that for me, please. But I'm so glad to see all of you here this morning, uh, meeting new friends, seeing those I've known for a while. But I'm so glad you're here this morning. Welcome. Now, today I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about communication. Now, communication, if done correctly, is a rare and valued skill. Wouldn't you agree? It's particularly difficult when one is trying to communicate with someone from a different culture or language. I just got yesterday a request from a dear friend in Germany to send a 50th birthday greeting to another friend there in the same place in Germany. And so I've already been working on it, and I'm going to say to him, Happy birthday in Germany. Anybody know how to do that? Well, I've looked it up, and here's what I'm supposed to say. It is alles gut, gute zum Gerbertstag, which means uh, literally all the best to you on your birthday. Alles gute zum Gerbertstag. Now, you may think, oh, he knows how to speak German, and I do know how to speak some German, and I'm learning more. But even any native German is going to know that I'm not a native speaker. They're going to know that, no matter how good I get. Now, they say I'm pretty good in pronouncing, pronouncing huh, easy for me to say, Spanish. But everybody knows I'm not Latino when I speak Spanish. Well, communication is hard when you're speaking to someone in a different culture or language. It's sometimes difficult when you speak to a different gender. Amen? Sometimes difficult when you are speaking to a different generational group. I mean, it just varies. For example, a mother shared this frustrating experience with her son who was home for the summer for, from college. And she's trying to draw him out. And she said, well, son, how are things going? He said, good. Well, how's the food at school? Good? Trying to draw him out a little further. Well, son, uh, you've always had a good football team. Uh, how's it going to be this year? Good? So things are going pretty well. Yeah, good. Well, son, uh, how are things going with your studies? Good? Well, have you decided on a major yet? Yes. What is your major going to be? You know what it is, don't you? Communications. Well, <laughs> uh, that, that is so, so typical of how it is, particularly with boys and men. Right, ladies? They just won't talk to you sometimes. Right, ladies? Amen. That's what my son-in-law said, you know. How are you doing? Fine. Remember what he said it meant? F-I-N-E? 
Feelings inside, not expressed. Well, communicating is difficult sometimes between people. It is. Jesus had the same trouble. And in our passage for again today, we're going to see that he struggled with communicating and getting those who were around him to understand what he was saying. And it seemed to take his essence in an identity crisis. So look with me this morning to John 8, beginning with verse 21 through 30. Now, those of you that may be first-timers today, we have been looking through the Gospel of John. And so if you want to catch up, go back and start reading John 1.1 and come up to where we are today and you'll see what we've been focusing upon. It's a, it's a challenge, by the way, to preach through a gospel every verse. And I've struggled with it a little bit. I struggled with it this week and I thought, you know, well, this is not the most powerful of passages. Maybe you ought to just tell them to read it and then pick up somewhere next week. Well, no. I believe God's Word is powerful. Even those sections that we may think are not quite as powerful. He has a Word for us. He really does. Somebody say amen if you believe that. I do believe that. And I believe even today in this passage He has a Word for us. But we see this identity crisis and this communications dilemma that Jesus faced. Beginning with verse 21, it says, Then he said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Kind of hard, isn't he? He's just slapping them right in the face. So the Jews said again, He won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. When they made that quantum leap in Logic, thinking that's what he was talking about. You are from below, he said, verse 23. He told them, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he just kind of laid it out there, didn't he? I mean, if there was any confusion about who he thought he was, it was ended with that. I am he. You, if you don't believe it, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Precisely what I've been telling you from the very beginning. Some people in South Carolina would say, I done told you. Jesus told them, I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have said from him, these things I tell the world. Verse 27, they do not know, they did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases me. Him. Wow. An identity crisis, communications dilemma. We see them both in this text. So let's look at it carefully this morning. First of all, and I'm not going to preach long today, by the way. I don't think it'll, uh, Kevin always times my sermons, and uh, I don't think it'll be the longest I've ever done. But I ask, as always, you stay with me, okay? I always want to finish before you do. Remember that. And that's true today. 
First of all, see the contrast. Look at verses 21, 22, and 23. We see the contrast because in verse 21, Jesus states the opposite direction that he is taking from that which the crowd is taking. And then in verse 23, he states the contrast in their spiritual origin from his spiritual origin. You're from one place, I'm from another. You're going one place, I'm going another. And so he states the contrast. He had struggled with the leaders before. This is not the first, even in the Gospel of John. He struggled with them because they had their own preconceived notions. They believed one thing and he's trying to get them to break free from those traditional thoughts and to understand reality. So he sets up this contrast. Where I'm going, you're not going to go. And I'm fixing to go there, but you're not going to go with me. They didn't understand. But you see, they had wasted their God-given opportunities. And he's saying to them, bottom line, your God-given opportunities are going to end soon. It's not going to last forever. You better open your eyes before it is too late. So we see the contrast between Christ and the leaders with whom he spoke. Second, we see the way to reconciliation. He is very clear in verse 24. Our Lord declares it powerfully that He is the way to true life. And you better understand that He is the way to true life. They misunderstood Him. They quickly go off in this aberrant direction. And they said, well, he tried, He's thinking about killing Himself. Well, that's not at all what He was saying. But go down that road with me just a moment. Uh, I do know, I have Jewish friends who are, uh, have shared openly with me about their beliefs. And Jews do hold an extremely dim view on suicide. Now, if anybody, you know, most of you know, uh, my family has been touched intimately by suicide. Many of you have family members who have committed suicide or have what we call in the, in the scholarly world suicidal ideation. They're thinking about it. Some of you in this room today might be thinking about it. It's a serious issue. It's epidemic in our culture. It's now the second or third leading cause of death among young adults and teenagers. It's now creeping down into young teenage years and older children. It's a terrible thing. Uh, we know that. It impacts uh, people for generations and generations. I mean, I wrote a book about it. I, I have experienced it in my own family. You know that. The Jews said it was so terrible that Jews believed that if one committed suicide, uh, they believed much like many people in 21st century America, that you have to go immediately to a place of judgment. Uh, it's just a foregone conclusion. And believe me, I've had that said because of our situation. Well, doesn't the Bible say that if you commit suicide, you go to hell? Well, as I've said countless times, show that to me. It doesn't say that. Yes, there are faith groups that believe that, but that is not what Scripture says. But Jews hold a very dim view toward suicide, and it is a terrible thing, and they should hold a dim view of it. 
In fact, it caused great, still causes great consternation when people talk about the greatest mass suicide of all history occurred among Jews. Where was that? Masada. Technically, it wasn't. Because that horrible circumstance on the top of that 21-acre plateau there in southeast Jerusalem technically wasn't mass suicide because the fathers killed their own families. The leaders then killed certain fathers and then they cast lots which they have found on top of Masada and the leader killed the others and only one truly committed suicide. So it was technically not a mass suicide but in people's minds it was I think 922 persons died in that horrific experience there to keep the Romans from taking them as slaves they would rather die than become Roman slaves well it was a serious issue among the Jews and they thought Jesus was saying he is going to commit suicide that's not at all what he was saying he was telling them That's not why you can't follow me. It's not because I'm going to commit suicide. But the fact is, the opposite's true. You're the ones who are going to a place of judgment. And I'm not going where you are going. I'm going to be returning to the Father. You're going to a totally different destination. Somebody showed me a a supposed, I don't think it was true, tombstone of an atheist. And it said, all dressed up, no place to go. Well, they do have a place to go. They're not going nowhere. They're going somewhere. And Jesus is saying to those around him, if you will not accept the truth, you need to know where I'm going. Not going to be where you're going. And he was very clear about the way to reconciling this. They were going to different different places because they had different origins as well as different destinations. Now quick, verse 25, we see the continued confusion. It's incredible, really. It's incredible because he's saying to them, listen, I've already told you over and over who I belong to. I've told you over, I've given you every evidence, but they deliberately rejected his parentage spiritually. He had already told them that he was from God the Father, but they rejected that over and over. And he kept saying, in essence, in verse 25, I am exactly who I said I was. I am not telling you anything new. But they were not honestly considering the witnesses that he had already given them. And so there was this continued confusion. But next and last, and perhaps most importantly, let's see the Lord's explanation. Latter part of verse 25 through 29, we see him explaining. Now in verse 26, he made several claims to deity. He had already made a number of claims to deity. I am co-equal with the Father. I am co-eternal with the Father. He had already said all these things that drove them crazy. And again, he gives these claims to deity He he says, I have many things to say to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, these things I tell you, I get these straight from God the Father. They didn't understand. And now Jesus speaks about his own coming death. And I will be lifted up. 
And so he is talking about in verse 27, excuse me, 28, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And that is both a reference to the physical uh, crucifixion, but he's also talking about the fact that he'll be lifted up in exaltation and glorification. So he's speaking both of the spiritual and the physical. I will be lifted up. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And it was on the cross that he died in your place, in my place. It was on the cross that he revealed his power of forgiveness. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about angels. And I love that study. We sang it, it was in one of the hymns today, wasn't it? The angels will gather in praising him. Oh my goodness, the sound will be unbelievable. We're studying it on Wednesday nights. And while he was there on that cross, one of the things we pointed out Wednesday night was this. One death angel in the Bible killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. But Jesus on the cross said, if I wanted to, I could call 12,000 angels right now. Snap my finger, 12,000 angels. One killed 185,000 one night. Can you imagine the power at his disposal? I will be lifted up in glorification. I will be lifted up. I will reveal who I am on that cross. And he did. In terms of glory, not just suffering. It would be his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We know that he would proclaim and his disciples would proclaim to the whole world. In fact, it started just after he died. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, the one who had struggled so much as his disciple, stood and gave one of the most impassioned pleas ever preached anywhere about Jesus' perfect life, about his vicarious dying, about his resurrection and his gloriously ascended body. And so that was the message that would go out to the whole world. But Jesus concludes this explanation with really two stupendous claims. One, that he was, the Father was with him because he always, one, he was sent by the Father, and two, the Father was with him because he always did what the Father wanted, and he always did what pleased the Father. And so we see his explanation, it's powerful. But last, let's see the result. Now I know from previous passages that many reacted violently to his constant and consistent claims to deity. But some believed. Look at verse 30. And he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, at this point, some scholars say, well, we don't know if it was saving faith or, or a shallow kind of a belief. Well, at this point... Jesus has already laid everything out. And I think if they believed in him now, they believed in him truly and deeply. And they believed in him. Listen to me, my friend. Salvation is a matter of life and death. When we see people on the street and people in our family and we are not even aware of their spiritual condition, it ought to grieve us because it's a matter of life and death. But there has come into our churches these days a creeping universalism. In our minds, we kind of sit back and say, well, you know, first of all, I can't judge anybody. Well, no, you can't. No, you can't. 
so I really don't know. I, I just don't know if I should talk to them because, you know, maybe God in the end will just let everybody slip in. There's a creeping universalism in our culture today, and it is against the Word of God. Salvation is a matter of life or death. People who live in their sins and reject their Savior must die in their sins. There's no alternative. You say, well, he's preaching hellfire and brimstone. You better believe I am. There's only one alternative if you die in your sins, and that is hell. And for those who claim the name of the Son of God, there is one alternative, and that is heaven. Oh, my friends, I believe it. You see, we either walk in the light and have eternal death, life, or we walk in darkness and experience eternal death. Say, it, say that out loud. And just leave that up for a moment, would you, honey? It says we either walk in the light and have eternal life, or we walk in the darkness and experience eternal death. Uh, for weeks, I passed out. Weeks ago, I passed out uh, testimony sheets. Remember that? Some of you did it. Now, if you die, don't blame me that I can't read your testimony at your funeral. Don't be blaming me. Many of you have done it. I got some of you still working on it. You're a little slow, but that's all right. I got three. Yeah, well, yeah, you got an excuse, Cliff, but I'll give you another week. He just joined two weeks ago. Okay, so he's new. So anyway, uh, one, three got, we got three of them last week. And so one sweet person in this church, can you, can you guess the gender if I said that? How do you know that? One sweet person whose name I will not use, I asked permission, could I read a section of this person's testimony. And this sweet person said, sure. I'm not using the name. If you want to find out who it is, just start asking around. <laughs> but I always, it's just a simple testimony sheet. My life before Christ, how I came to know Christ, and my life since receiving Christ. So section number two, how did I find eternal life? This person said, when I was 11, my older sister, okay, it's a female person. My older sister on a Sunday night, you'll, you'll get to that in a minute, in September came home with me and my younger sister and told me, gone to church together and told my parents that she had accepted Christ. Stay with me. She had accepted Christ as her Savior and that my parents were going to hell if they didn't accept Christ as their Savior. Next page. I mean, she, she's helping me out here. Both my parents were alcoholics. And they were really mad that a man of God, and I'm just reading what she said, man of, uh, mad that a man of God would send their child home and tell them they were going to hell. Stay with me. Daddy grabbed his gun and went to the pastor's house to kill him. Has that ever been threatened to me? More than once. I went to my bedroom and I asked Christ to come into my life. And I asked, <laughs> I also asked Christ to keep my daddy from ki killing the preacher. <laughs> Thank you, honey, for praying that prayer. Are you listening? 
Dad came home at 4.30 in the morning and woke all of us up. And we went downstairs to the kitchen and Dad poured out all the alcohol down the drain. And the rest of my family got saved also. Our house finally became a home. God's love and forgiveness is intertwined through the Bible and Christ's gift is a matchless gift of love. Does that still happen? I mean, really? Does that, can that happen? This lady tells this testimony. I believe her. My house finally became a home. When the Lord is in the home, it becomes a home, not just a house. When mama or daddy walk in the light and have eternal life. Where are you walking? Where are you walking? Well, Jesus communicated pretty clear. There are two ways. There are two choices. And nobody can make that choice for you. Nobody. What will be your choice? Where are you walking? Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of the truth. I thank you, Lord, that you came into this family's life long ago and changed it forever. I thank you the preacher didn't get killed. But God, I thank you for the change that happened in that family's life. God, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to all of us, all of us, about our walk, where it is we're heading. And we commit this to you in Jesus' precious, holy name. Amen.